Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. This episode brings us to Genesis chapter 44. We are almost at the end of this glorious book of beginnings. And it seems like just yesterday that we got started with the first chapter. But it was almost a full year ago. So we've had some time in this book of Genesis. For those of you who have been with me from the beginning, I want to say thank you for continuing this journey with me. And for those who may be just finding the forge for the first time, I'm glad that you are here. And I hope you come back. It's my goal to cover the entire Bible through the lifetime of this podcast or my own remaining lifetime, whichever comes first. So hopefully we can get it done before big tech and at the behest of a tyrannical government shuts down all voices contrary to power. And before my life on this earth is over. And with that said, let's pause our hearts and minds to meditate on the word of the only one true and living God. The one who did indeed create all things and by whom all things exist. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 44, verse 1. The word of God. 
And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing." So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die." And we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. And each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. And he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him and said, O oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother 
comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore... Please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? What a powerful defense Judah lays out here. As I get into my comments, I remind you that I have pointed out that God was with Joseph over the last 20 plus years now. I made it a point to draw out um, our attention to this fact that God was with Joseph. And I also made it a point and invited us all to imagine what those same years would have been like for the guilty brothers. What would it have been like for them? And I would add now that God was also with Joseph's brothers during this time. However, his presence in the brothers' lives was different than it was in Joseph's life, where God had caused Joseph to find favor and be prospered in the midst of slavery and imprisonment. God dealt with the brothers who were outwardly free. Their consciences were held captive. And God was now using his servant, Joseph, to bring about the realization of guilt, the fear of God, and that godly sorrow that we've spoken about. And all of this leads to what? It leads to repentance. And you may also recall that in an earlier episode, I made reference to these ideas of guilt and fear and sorrow. And I made the conclusion we kind of came to the conclusion that these things are actually grace of God because God was with Joseph and he was with the brothers and he was with the covenant family and he used all of these things as a work of grace in their life to draw them all closer to himself. 
In chapter 43, I pointed out that mercy and peace, which was showered upon the brothers, and especially remember we talked about Benjamin. We talked about the overwhelming compassion of Joseph toward his brother Benjamin, which was so great that Joseph had to leave, go into another room, and weep. He had to wash his face before he could rejoin with them at the feast. And again, I invite you to put yourself into the narrative. Imagine if you were one of the servants preparing the meals for Joseph and his guests, and you've never seen your master behave in such a way. The man of great power and position loses his composure to the point that he has to leave and find another room and weep. What must have gone on in the minds of those behind the scenes, as well as the Hebrew guests? You see, none of them were knowing that Joseph was in their very presence, and they didn't know what Joseph knew. And none of them saw the source of the mercy. My only point here is that peace and grace and mercy, compassion, and a deep abiding love were ever stronger I want you to get this in the presence of guilt and fear and sorrow. You see, this chapter deals with the final test from Joseph, and I may say it was also from God. This chapter deals with the final test from Joseph, and may I say it was also from God, where these brothers are faced with a temptation similar to the one they faced when they first sold Joseph. Will they fail? Or will they be transformed? As Christians, we see in these events all happening under God's direction, the life-changing power of an awakened conscience, repentance, intercession, sacrifice, and before it's all over, substitution. Basically, we see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ pictured here in this whole scene that is unfolding between these brothers. Now, if you want a inside job or a frame up or whatever words there are to describe what happened here, look no further than verses one through six. You see, Joseph gives them all the food they can carry, and then he has his servant place all the money back into the sacks, and then he has his silver cup placed into Benjamin's sack. This would obviously make it look like Benjamin had stolen it. It's very clearly a setup. And since we have read the whole chapter, we know Joseph is going to accuse Benjamin of stealing his silver cup. And it was more than just something Joseph used to hold his drink. It's insinuated here in verse 5 that Joseph would use the cup for the purpose of divination. Now, to be clear... I do not think that the righteous Joseph who worshiped the one and only true living God would ever do such a thing. His dream interpretation came from the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. He didn't practice pagan things, even though he lived in a pagan culture. And certainly the Egyptians would have no problem with the concept of using something like a silver cup, you know, filling it with wine or some other fluid and then staring into it and, and practicing divination. The brothers think they're dealing with an Egyptian here. So no matter what they think of it, they're sure that the Egyptian believes that he can divine things from this cup. 
But as always, at the Forge, we always find there's something more going on here. You see, the accusation of stealing the divining cup carries a threefold charge, which these men of the one true living God would no doubt find offensive. Joseph knows what he's doing here. This accusation would make them very afraid for more than just the obvious reasons. First off, it shows their perceived ingratitude because Joseph even has his steward. You will remember the question was, why would you repay evil for good? Second thing, and what seems to be the most obvious, they are accused of theft. They had taken something which did not belong to them. And here again, we see the godly concept of one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. It's already in practice among the heathens, even before God had given these commands. Somehow, men knew that if it does not belong to you, you are not allowed to take it. Where did that rule come from? I would suggest for your consideration that there was a knowledge of God, as misguided as it may have been, as primitive as it may have been, men knew because the spirit of the living God had dealt with men. And then thirdly, this accusation carries with it the charge of apostasy. That is to say that these members of the covenant family would appear to the Egyptians to no longer actually believe in the one true living God as they claimed. These Hebrews were now willing to use what they had previously considered to be an evil means to tell the future. So there's three things going on here. Again, remember the first one. Joseph accuses them of their ingratitude. Secondly, he accuses them of theft. And then thirdly, kind of bound up within the accusation itself is this idea that you guys are supposed to be worshiping the one true living God. You are Hebrews. You are part of some other clan that is not Egyptian, and you don't need these methods, but yet you have taken my cup. Kind of makes them look like a hypocrite. So don't overlook yet one other detail. What was the cup made out of? Silver. That's right, silver. And what was the method of payment for Joseph's slavery? Silver. So the Hebrew word for silver is also the word for money, kesef. So just as silver had been used as the currency to purchase Joseph and begin his new life of slavery and imprisonment, he now uses that same substance to bring his brothers to the same fate that he once endured. Again, if I can notice this, I am very sure that it was not lost on the brothers. They may have serious character flaws, but one thing, they weren't stupid. They can see there's some similarities here. Verses 11 through 13 is where the planted evidence is finally found. The brothers' reaction means everything. And I would point out their logical defense before the steward. Basically, they were making the case that when they found their money from the first trip, they brought it back on the second trip. And it doesn't make any sense that they would turn around and take the money 
yet a second time. They were so confident in their innocence that they offer themselves as slaves if they are found guilty. And when the one is found who did the crime, they even say he could be executed by the state. It's reminiscent of when Jacob's wife stole the gods of Laban. And Jacob says, search all of our things to find your gods. Well, this time they find the evidence, the so-called evidence, which we know was planted by Joseph. What a change had taken place in these brothers. They are not the same men who would slaughter the innocent with the guilty as they carried out the genocide of the Shechemites. Remember how unrepentant they were before their father back at Shechem. They justified their actions by claiming to defend the honor of their sister. And remember, too, the eldest who had taken Jacob's wife, Billah, as an act of defiance. And he was going to, basically, he was saying, I will ascend over my father. And of course, don't forget Judah, who we might even call a whoremonger at this time. He ran off and married a pagan woman, and then he slept with his own daughter-in-law, thinking that she was a Canaanite prostitute. And I'm only pointing out that something has happened here in these men's souls. They don't seem to be the same ones who are willing to lie and willing to cover up. Joseph was interested in one man, his brother, Benjamin. What would the other brothers do? They might be just fine allowing Benjamin to be a slave. And remember, they were just fine with it with Joseph. Maybe they don't care if Benjamin becomes a slave as well. They might assume that their father would die anyway, right? He was probably going to die soon. He's getting pretty old after all. And as we will soon see in a future chapter, he does pass away. He was getting close. But it is interesting what we see recorded in verse 13. We're not told what words were spoken by the brothers, but we are told what their actions were. What did they do? They tore their clothes. And this is an outward sign of the deepest sorrow in this tradition, in this culture. They tore their clothes. And this is why I state that the brothers have changed at this point. When Joseph was found to be missing, Jacob alone tore his clothes. And the brothers just kind of, I imagine, it's not really written in scripture, but I imagine that they just kind of stood around. Maybe they looked at one another, but one thing they didn't do, they didn't mourn for Joseph, not like their father. They didn't tear their clothes. But now these brothers, they're together with Benjamin and they rip their clothes. And I believe that they wept. It's not recorded, but they knew they were in deep trouble. But note that they did not act out of selfish ambition, but instead they took their place with Benjamin. There's no question that the young Benjamin protested his innocence. He knew he was innocent. If there was anyone there who knew he didn't do it, Benjamin knew he didn't do it. Think about the fear that must have gripped his soul. And he had not done 
anything wrong. But the brothers had already decided that they would not do to their father what they had done before. They went with Benjamin back to Egypt to plead their case before this Egyptian ruler to a man. They stand with Benjamin. Friends, this shows us an incredible change of character. And Judah, who has now become the spokesman for the group, he steps forward in verses 14 through 16, and he pleads for Benjamin's life. He admits, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves. Are they truly guilty of the charge being brought? Well, no, of course not. They're not guilty. It was a setup. It was a frame job. They've been framed. While they may be innocent of this particular crime, they realize that they are guilty before God for something far worse. If slavery in Egypt is what happens to them, it only seems fitting. So be it. Friends, when you realize your own personal guilt before the God of all things, all the petty things that you hold on to as excuses, they suddenly become totally insignificant. It no longer matters to you who said or who did this thing or that thing because you realize that you are guilty before God for your own sins. Now, I'm not justifying things that were done wrong to you. Maybe you were mistreated. Maybe you were even mistreated within a religious setting. Maybe there were people in the church who were absolutely mean and wrong to you and sinned against you. And you think that that's going to be your defense line when you stand before the God of the universe. God, I decided that since I was mistreated, I didn't want anything to do with your people or your church. You think that's going to work? <laughs> Let me assure you, friend, that's not going to work. But when the Holy Spirit touches your heart, when he opens your eyes, when he melts your heart, you realize that you are in no position to hold someone to a standard that you yourself have broken you realize that you alone are guilty before God. God will take care of those other situations. He will take care of those other things that you're holding on to as excuses. Question is, what are you going to do? Because you are just as guilty. I want you to meditate on that, friends, because this is where we find the brothers you see, they've come to this place where they realize I alone am responsible for my actions and my sins against God. Doesn't matter that Joseph got favoritism. It doesn't matter that he got a coat. It doesn't matter that my father was intending to put him in charge. None of that matters. What I did was a sin against God. And this is where Judah finds himself. As he's standing there, I'm not guilty of this particular crime, but what difference does it make? I'm still guilty before God, and God alone knows what I've done. He knows my heart. 
And so it is in verses 17 through 34 that Judah recounts how it was that Benjamin came along with them. And he stresses that if Benjamin does not return with them to their father, it will kill their father. And as we look at Judah's defense before this Egyptian viceroy, the position filled by Joseph, let us take a few moments and analyze it. Judah's argument is that Benjamin's presence in Egypt has been brought about by the viceroy's own insistence. He's being very careful with his words, but Judah is gently implicating this Egyptian ruler. He recounts to Joseph, without knowing that it's Joseph, that their father was afraid of losing Benjamin. And for the first time in over 20 years, Joseph learns what happened when his brother returned to their father with a bloody coat. Jacob stated, surely he is torn into pieces. But more importantly, at least to Joseph, is that this phrase uttered by his father echoes in the minds of his brothers. It had been stamped upon their conscience. From the book Genesis, Beginning and Blessing, I read you this quote. Joseph also learned that Judah and his brothers now spoke differently about the favoritism shown to Rachel and her two sons because Judah cited his father's favoritism for Joseph and now for Benjamin as a reason for Joseph to let Benjamin go, end quote. Interestingly, Judah, when quoting his father, states, You know that my wife bore me two sons. That's what we find in verse 27. There's a slight implication here that Judah is making the case to this Egyptian ruler that Benjamin is a legitimate son. At the very least, we see that Judah has accepted his father's favoritism for Rachel and her offspring. It is Judah's own reference to this favoritism, which he uses as the reason for freeing Benjamin. He is using this as really the foundation of his defense as he pleads his case here before this harsh Egyptian ruler. In other words, he's saying, I am begging you, sir, please, my father favors this wife and her son so much so that his life is bound up in the life of this boy, Benjamin. He has lost his wife and the other son from that union. Please take me instead. If not, my father will die. I will be your slave. Please have mercy upon my father. There's been a transformation in the very soul of Judah. He and all the other brothers had made the sorrow of Jacob their own. Don't let that slip past you. Look at the great love which Judah now shows for his father Israel and his brother Benjamin. He is thinking only of them and not of himself. This is the love which melts the heart of Joseph. This is the same kind of love which compelled Moses to ask God to blot his name out of the book of life in Exodus 32, 32, which we haven't gotten to yet. 
It's the same love that we see in Paul when he wishes himself to be accursed, that his countrymen might be saved. And we find that in Romans 9, 3. Judah's name actually means praise. Judah means praise. And I don't want to go through the list again, but up to this point in his life, there's nothing going on that's praiseworthy. (laughs) His personal transformation is culminated in the final prophecy given by his father Israel as the Holy Spirit reveals that it is from Judah that the Messiah would come. And we will cover that when we get to Genesis 49. And it's actually 49 verse 10. Judah pleads for mercy. Notice also that Judah pleaded only for those in the covenant family. He did not make a case for anyone outside the covenant family. And think of this. There's no way to prove Benjamin's innocence. He was therefore guilty before the law. And remember, this is not the United States where supposedly you're innocent until proven guilty. It's more likely that you were guilty until proven innocent. And Judah was certainly innocent of the crime of stealing the cup. But I want you to get this. For the sake of his father, Judah the innocent was willing to take the punishment so Benjamin, the guilty one, could go free. Let me slow that down and say that one more time. I want you to get this because there's something beautiful happening here. For the sake of the father, Judah, the innocent of this particular crime, was willing to take the punishment so that Benjamin, the guilty one, could go free. Does that sound familiar to you? Who also, at the will of his father, and innocent of the crime, was willing to lay down his life so that the guilty would be cleared of all charges. It is fitting that Jesus indeed would come from this line, the line of Judah. I can hardly wait to get to the next chapter. What happens next will surely touch your heart. So until then, may God use this effort to glorify himself and strengthen you and bring those who have been elected into the covenant of his grace. Amen. again for listening to the forge podcast and don't forget to leave a review with comments let me hear from you leave a voice message through the link i hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of god's word in daily living remember dear christian you are forgiven it is by grace that you've been saved through faith 
May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out not only in you but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him.